Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Outside New York, no American city's residents debate their decision to live within the city limits more than those in San Francisco's 49 square miles. Despite its oft-discussed problems, the city is still a place where a lot of people want to live. But unless you got here just last year, the San Francisco you knew is probably no longer. In a new book, The End of the Golden Gate, writers on loving and sometimes leaving San Francisco... 25 writers explore their complex relationship with this place. You marry one person, but you stay married to another. A city becomes a different city, whether you stay or leave, writes contributor Daniel Handler. What is San Francisco becoming, and do you plan to stay? That's next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. For a city proud of its reputation as the glittering devil-may-care zone of misrule at the end of the continent... The question of how San Francisco has changed touches on local people's deepest sense of who they are, who they were, and who they want to be, writer Gary Camilla says in the introduction to a new essay collection, The End of the Golden Gate, Writers on Loving and Sometimes Leaving San Francisco. We're going to talk with three contributors to the collection about how our identities are entangled with and transformed by this ever-changing city. But first, we can't talk about a changing San Francisco without just stipulating here up at the top that our housing policy is an enormous failure, except for those homeowners who bought in the 70s and 80s and who've benefited from tax benefits and enormous increases in land prices. But this is not a housing segment. This is about the city as a whole, its sense of itself, its creative communities. And we want it to be a conversation among us all that doesn't just sort of rehearse the things we've said in bars and on Twitter. Joining us today are Daniel Handler, author of the Children's Book Series, a series of unfortunate events, so you may actually know him as Lemony Snicket. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, We also have Kimberly Reyes, poet, essayist, and the author of Running to Stand Still, a collection of poetry. Welcome, Kimberly. Thanks. Happy to be here. And Alia Voles, who's the author of Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. Good morning. Um. I'm going to throw out a question to all three of you, and it goes to this. You know, there's plenty of other cities in the Bay Area, across the country, across the world. Why do we care about San Francisco? Alia, you want to start? Well, for me, it's fairly obvious. I was born here, and my earliest sense of self was very much entwined with my understanding of the city. My 
folks operated a high volume cannabis edibles business. We were very much involved in community out and about in the neighborhoods. And those were my earliest memories. What was your very first memory of San Francisco? <laughs> my very first memory of anything, in fact, was of splashing in a warm puddle on a sunny day in the mission where we lived and my mom stopping me and saying, don't play in that. It might be pee. <laughs> a actually remarkably common thing to have happen uh, in, in the city. Um, <laughs> Daniel, yeah, Daniel, why do you care about San Francisco? <laughs> I'm stuck on a puddle of pee. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm focused on now. Um, I was also born in San Francisco. And um, I think if you are raised in San Francisco, you often... Um, have a misapprehension that you're not in a particularly unique place. Mm. And um, when I've gone elsewhere, when I've traveled elsewhere, and when I've lived elsewhere, the truth of um, San Francisco's unique position and culture is made very clear to me. So it, it really wasn't until I was in my college in my early 20s, my, um, my motto used to be, oh, I like a medium-sized city. I grew up in a medium-sized city, and so I think I would be most comfortable in a medium-sized city. You would city. love Tucson, Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Pittsburgh, all kinds of other cities that turn out not really to resemble San Francisco just because they have approximately the same population um, was a real eye opener for me. And so um, I think when I feel uh, I, I, it, it can be hard to define and I'm sure we'll all try to circle around it in this conversation, but there's something unique about San Francisco that I feel uh, defensive about and enthusiastic about. Mm -hmm. And I think that is certainly from living here, but it's also from going other places and comparing it. Well, Kimberly, you're one of the writers in the collection who left, I believe, right? You're in New York now? Yes. So what, what did you hope to find in the Bay Area, or maybe it was San Francisco specifically when you came out? Yeah, from an outsider perspective coming in, I think it's deeply generational, meaning I'm a Gen Xer, I'm still of the generation who saw the promise of like freedom and, um, you know, being a rebel city. And I think the generations after me probably see it as the promise of money and, mm -hmm. you know, technology and entrepreneurship and that sort of thing. Um, so that was the promise, um, I would say. Um, and yeah, I was in it for like, you know, to be a rebel, to be an outsider comfortably within city limits um, that I didn't feel I could, you know, I, we could talk about more how I actually felt it was the city of respectability politics for me as a black woman. Mm. But um, I came in hoping that I could just be me, you know, a bit quirky. Um, and I didn't really find that. Yeah. Tell us what you did find. Uh, <laughs> uh, sort of pretty aggressive racism. You know, it's not a, not necessarily any more so than anywhere else but i think because san francisco is so unself-aware of itself and its racism that it felt like a bigger slap in the face yeah yeah and we're gonna definitely talk about that more um we also want to hear from listeners um how does the san francisco you're living in today compare to what you thought it would be you know does does our mythology and our nostalgia for the way the city was whenever you arrived does that sort of prevent San Francisco, can we not get out of our, our own way? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Of course, we're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, Aaliyah, 
I want to go back to you about the, the San Francisco that you grew up in. And I, in part, it's because I, I'm jealous of the fact that you got to know the sort of pre-age San Francisco that I only knew from Tales of the City, which mm-hmm. was really uh, what defined for me like, oh, wow, this magical um, city. Can you just what are some of the memories that you have from that time that you feel um, really defined San Francisco as a unique place? Honestly, I so I was born in 1977 and AIDS hit 1981 or that was when it began to hit. So I really grew up in the AIDS crisis, but my parents were here in the early and mid 70s and they had come out post hippie. Right. So there's this idea that 100,000 people come out in 1967 and everything changes. But um, one of the things that I think is interesting about about that transition is that the summer of love was always kind of a a hype situation. People came out here looking for a land of milk and honey that did not exist. But once all of these young people unmoored from their homes, looking to experiment with new lifestyles got here, they went and created new lifestyles. So that pre-AIDS era was a time of very dynamic creativity, a lot of social experimentation, Some of it was marvelous. Some of it went very dark, you know, with the People's Temple, of course, Mm -hmm. the assassinations of Milk and Moscone. But it was a place that people came to to create a new kind of world, to create a new kind of life. And I think San Francisco often represents that in our popular cultural thinking. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's been interesting, too, to learn more and more about sort of the, the Great Migration's impact on the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, you know, a place that had very few black residents and then for a time, you know, had about 13 percent of the residents were black before. Now we're down to less than half of that. Mm-hmm. Kimberly, when you were you know interacting with the native Bay Area black population, um, did you hear people saying like, Hey, you know, that's I have that same sense of the city as this kind of magical place. Or were you hearing a different set of uh, of stories? Yeah, I think it's a different set of stories. Um, I, you know, for example, I I didn't know that O.J. Simpson was from San Francisco um, until watching the documentary um, on his life, and just even hearing the background of you know him growing up in the projects in San Francisco and I believe Bayview, um, and how it was never sort of this like. Uh, you know, I'm going out Sunday night to see Sylvester, you know, in the club, it was like, uh, no, like, you know, this is like destitute poverty here, I'm trying to get out of. Um, And so I feel like there were, you know, there's definitely layers of like, the people who were even able to enjoy San Francisco, you know, for what we think of as San Francisco in the golden days. Um, And I gotta be honest, it was really hard for me to find native black San Franciscans. I didn't even really connect with that community until I'd say the six months before I left. And at that point, it was kind of a a bit too late. Um, You know, um, it was really hard to find because I was circulating in the artistic community, um, like through my MFA program, which was not very Black. um, And also in court, I was in corporate America in San Francisco, you know, uh, in the tech world. And I, there were no Black people there for me to interact with. So it, it took a lot of work for me to find that community. Yeah, yeah. If I can just throw in there that in, In the early mid-60s, before the whole Summer of Love thing happened, the Haight-Ashbury, the very epicenter, or what's considered the epicenter of hippiedom, 
was 50% African American. Mm. And these were, there were multi generational families that were displaced by all these, you know, goofy white kids <laughs> who came out looking for something that didn't exist there and, and, you know, ran roughshod over the neighborhood. Yeah. How should we incorporate that into our sense of what happened in San Francisco in those years? Uh, honestly. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that, I mean, I think that um, both outside of San Francisco and, and within the city, there's this way of looking at that era that is buying into the falsehoods that created it. I don't know if that makes sense, but this, the, the summer of love, I mean, anybody who was here, uh, and I, of course, was not born yet, but anybody who was here and participating in the early days of the hippie movement would say that it, the summer of love was at least two, three years before 1967. And that was kind of created by Time magazine. Um, but then everyone comes out looking for it. And it was, it was a fantasy to begin with. Uh, and we could say the same thing about the gold rush. We could say the same thing about um, the, the, the mass migration of LGBTQ plus folks before that acronym existed in the 70s. You come out looking for something that isn't real and then you, you make a thing out of it. Do you think the uh, people coming out for the tech world are coming out for the same kind of fantasy? I don't know if it's the same fantasy, but I think it's an iteration of the same phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like, um, like you kind of can't have the freedom of reinvention that, I mean, I think California at large tends to offer, but certainly San Francisco in particular, um, without, and also be honest about the history. And I think that is always what's kind of mm. kicking us around is that so many people come here with a sense of, um, I can live without the context and the, um, and the, the burdens of the now. history. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the bad news is that if you say, okay, there, there's no context here and let's not remember what happened before that obviously you're going to run rough shot over all kinds of years. Yeah. We'll be back with more about the city that we love and sometimes leave San Francisco after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with contributors to the new essay collection, The End of the Golden Gate, writers on loving and sometimes leaving San Francisco. We've got Daniel Handler, author of the children's book series, A Series of Unfortunate Events, under the pen name Lemony Snicket, of course. Alia Voles, the author of Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and The Stoning of San Francisco. And Kimberly Reyes, a poet, essayist, and author of the book Running to Stand Still, a collection of poetry. I want to uh, read just one comment, uh, which I think sort of sums up. This, this, is, I, this really is something you hear a lot. Melissa writes, I'm planning to leave San Francisco. 
I am a fourth-generation San Franciscan who sadly watched the the devolution of San Francisco since about the year 2000 with the increase of tech. The odd, quirky, creative, and culture-changing people and lifestyle which feeds me is evaporating. I can still afford to live here, but I don't want to. My people, that's in quotes, and the diversity I crave is gone. Being San Franciscan is a dominant part of my character. I don't know how to describe the ghost sense it has left me. The sadness deepens with each person I see who is here for the new San Francisco and doesn't even know what has been lost. And you do, you hear, you hear this uh, elegy. I, in fact, I actually went to look up all the sort of demographic figures uh, from San Francisco, you know, going back over, say, you know, the last 30 years. And I think one of the most stunning things to me was really the numbers have changed only for one group, which is basically black people have left the city. But other groups, there's a few more Asian people um, among sort of Latinx folks. There's a, a little bit of variation, but not much. Um, and I wonder if, you know, we people say the diversity has left San Francisco. Do you think they just mean black people? Or do you think that um, they're talking about something else, something less um, easy to mark than uh, racial or ethnic identity? Maybe I'll go to Kimberly to start. Um, so possibly both, uh, meaning that, yeah, diversity of thought um, has probably left a bit. Um, it's become, you know, like from, from my personal experience, again, I was dealing with both the academic and corporate worlds. And, you know, it seemed pretty preppy <laughs> as a city. Um, and I don't think that that's what people necessarily expect coming in. Um, and certainly, yes, um, when you're talking about race, it's, it's, it is not a diverse place. And I'm someone who grew up in primarily white uh, institutions and neighborhoods. And uh, yeah, it was even startling for me. It's interesting, though. I mean, it is a, a city that's like 35 percent Asian at this point. You know, um, Latin population is about 15 percent. It's a, it, it's interesting. Cause, I mean, it it is, uh, you know, among rankings of cities, it's, you know, fairly diverse. It just has very few black people. And I I've, I've wondered about that um, over and over. Let's um, bring some uh, callers into the discussion here. Um, Margaret uh, from Berkeley. Hi. Um, how are you? Hey. So um, I was born in Mexico, but I immediately moved to San Francisco. I was born in 73. And I was about, oh, and, and my, you know, it was very diverse at that time, um, minus the black people, as you guys are talking about. And so I had all types of friends. My mom had all types of friends. And when I was about 11, we moved to Texas. And on the first day of school, you know, where are you from? You're the new kid. And I said, I'm from San Francisco. And they asked me with hate in their voices, are you a lesbian? Mm. And, you know, I didn't know. I, and I, but I knew immediately, like, wow, this place is different, or maybe San Francisco is different. And so I self-corrected, and I said, well, actually, I'm Mexican. I'm from Mexico. And I heard the words wetback and alien for the first time in my life. Huh. And I came home. And I told my mom, or actually I asked, am I an alien? I thought it literally meant from another planet. And um, she cried, and we stopped speaking Spanish, and I decided immediately to get my ass back to San Francisco as soon as I was 18 years old. Oh, man. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it's just, it really, it really was a different place than the rest of the states at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we made a similar move when I was 10, and I heard 
many of those same <laughs> things. Um, I, did your did you come back though? You came back and you've stayed. I I um I actually missed my last summer after high school, so I could get back immediately. I came back and I lived with my dad for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you think you're going to stay or are you going to leave? Um, I'm going to stay. I did do the exodus out of San Francisco to the East Bay. And that's, you know, another thing from being a kid in San Francisco is there is so much prejudice against Berkeley and Oakland. But it really is warmer <laughs> and cheaper. <laughs> and the commute's not horrible. So I'm going to stay in the Bay Area. I'm, I, I can't live anywhere else in the U.S. I, I just can't. Yeah. It's, and it has changed. Like the tech industry has, it's not the San Francisco I grew up in. But it's still yeah. 110 times better than the rest of the country. <laughs> Thanks, Margaret. Um, Ali, I think you know one of the questions that I think Margaret's call brings up is whether the rest of the country has become more like San Francisco in terms of certain types of tolerance, therefore making this, relatively speaking, a less special place. Do you think that's true? Oh. <laughs> um, I'm not an expert in the rest of the country, but... Uh... I would say to a certain extent, yes. Um, in my experience, just when I go to another city, I am pleasantly um, refreshed by by the diversity. And we're talking about, talking about um, I just want to go back also to um, an earlier point about the experience of diversity. I've been thinking about your question there. Mm-hmm. And um, this is just a, a personal observation. I could be wrong, but I feel that I used to take the city bus and feel like I heard every language spoken at once. There was that really enlivening feeling that felt um, very metropolitan, very worldly. And I think that that has changed. So Hmm. while there is perhaps many of the demographics are similar, the the need to be a high income earner in order to survive here, I think changes, even if the ethnicity of the demographic hasn't changed, certainly the certainly the kind of person that's able to survive here has changed. Yeah. Daniel, and, you know, this is a famously progressive city. Is it possible to stay progressive when the median house price is a million and a half dollars? Um, I hope so as a homeowner. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I do think what, you, what we're all kind of talking around is that it's that I see economic displacement as being the biggest thing that is happening and the way that overlaps with, with race and culture is, um, you know, of course, something that we think about a lot. But everyone I know who has had to leave San Francisco is because of, of how much it costs. And um, I see that certainly in the artistic community. Um, and I just see it in um, that I think it's still possible to be really broke here as a as a young person and kind of bumming around. But I think when you want to have more of a, a life for yourself, I think that San Francisco is making that more and more difficult. And I think that does make it less progressive, just kind of on its face. And by less progressive, I think it's not necessarily socially less progressive or... Um, you know, that there's more Trump voting or something like that. But I mean, I think that in a, in a certain way, it's going to become more conservative if the, if the most visible parts of the culture are the wealthiest. And that's what I worry about with San Francisco is, is that it's become so impossible, I think, to live here um, 
as a as a grown up and uh, do something interesting and um, uh, you know and have less income and have a kind of more interesting life and give the city its vitality. Yeah, and that concerns me. Yeah, I Can think. Can I jump in on the oh, diversity yeah. point? Go ahead. Because um, I've been mulling this over. Um, it's not dissimilar to the conversations we have around sort of specialized schools. Um, and, you know, I write a lot about this in, from the New York perspective because I went to a specialized school here. And, and, you know, we talk about sort of like, well, you know, it's like 80% Asian, for example, at Bronx Science. So what's the problem? Um, and um, it's even, it's sort of reminiscent of the term um, BIPOC and why that was created. Um, and, you know, the conversations we had that everybody seemed to have forgotten just last summer about, you know, the unique experience of mm -hmm. Black and Indigenous people in this country. And so when I talk about the diversity in San Francisco leaving uh, or comparing it to other cities in America, I just think the system's working better. <laughs> it's like, a, it's, it's at warp speed in San Francisco because the system mm -hmm. is designed to keep a specific sort of person way further down. You know, there are levels and layers to it. And I think San Francisco is just succeeding really well at it. So you can have surface level diversity, but there are certain groups that are going to feel it more than others. Yeah. And Kimberly, you, you mentioned um, in your essay, James Baldwin's, uh, well, I guess he's the, the star of the show of Take This Hammer, an amazing documentary about the black experience in San Francisco in the early 1960s. Did you feel um, like when you watched that, were you sort of like, oh, yeah, that's the city I'm in right now? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not, you know, this essay isn't about, you know, San Francisco's over because my favorite bars uh, left and avocado toast is expensive. No, it's about like, you know, very, like, it's about an issue that has never changed. You know what I mean? Like we're talking, my, my essay is about systemic issues um, and how it represents itself in a city that may be throwing out, you know, inter like, you know, like sort of like actual critical race theory terms, like nobody's business, um, but not living up to it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you can say, oh, you know, I understand what intersectionality is, but if you're using the black woman you work with for emotional labor without promoting her, then you don't, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that it's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors um, and that, you know, we, you talk a big game and anybody who spent any time in Northern California knows the big game that the so-called liberals talk, but what does it look like? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well put. I think, yeah. Yeah. Let's here, here. <laughs> uh, Yeah, I just get just give that a little space to to settle in. Um let's uh go to Brad in San Mateo. Hi everybody. Uh thanks for taking my call. I think uh, uh San Francisco takes it pretty hard because really the elephant in the room is is inequality that capitalism produces and uh it's just particularly highlighted in San Francisco because you have explosive wealth generated from tech and, and IPOs and all the stuff going on. Uh, and without the traditional labor that Marx was talking about, yet the rest of the country is relegated to, you know, what I believe is slave, you know, traditional labor. Then yet nobody differentiates the income coming from labor versus just gaining, you know, from owning assets. It takes no labor, no physical labor. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have all the poverty San Francisco is extremely uh, generous. It's the brightest candle in the dark room of America, and all the moths uh, flock to it. And so all the poor come here. So you see the two ends highlighted. So finally, on a closing note, I'll just say there's two films that really highlight it. I think uh, Thomas Piketty's work is uh, featured in a film called uh, Capital in the 21st Century. So really, uh, I'd recommend anybody curious to see that. But yeah, I don't blame San Francisco so much. I'm sad to see what's happening. I moved down to Foster City. There's water and channels here. and But eventually I could feel myself getting crushed and uh, pushed farther and farther out. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I think ultimately it's the inequality, and I don't blame San Francisco for it. Uh, I'll take my comment off the air. Yeah, and I, I think there is just this 
incredible inequality that you see in the streets here that does seem to have a kind of corrosive effect um, on on civic life here. Um, do you do you see that in your kind of daily life, Daniel? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think um, I I think as uh, Kimberly was saying that the the kind of shiny surface of liberal rhetoric in some ways is harder to fight against in looking for opportunities for real progress than in other cities where it's pretty much often more plainly stated that there's a right-wing agenda going on. And, um, and I think that certainly right now you find that strongest in kind of the utopian, fairly progressive language of um, tech industry blather, right? Everyone's changing the world. There's a revolution happening every eight seconds because of somebody who's mm-hmm starting a company or who's working in some corner of one of these enormous technical empires. And just to know that they're not really paying their fair share of taxes, that the way they're behaving in the city from inventing their own bus lines to kind of reworking neighborhoods for their own maximum convenience and for no thought to anyone else is not a leftist and progressive agenda, but, but it's, uh, but it's shined up as one. And I think that's really tough to take and it's really hard to see it affecting ordinary people who are not um, working uh, in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone else want to chime in there or should we go to another caller? <laughs> I'm sure everyone here has complained so much about the tech industry. <laughs> <laughs> we could either talk for 30 yeah. hours. Well, do you guys, you want to hear my pet, my pet theory? <laughs> this is actually one of my pet theories about why Bay Area writers and musicians are so particularly aggrieved. And it's that I do love a magical pet theory. Yes, <laughs> this is my pet theory that the the tech industry, at the same time that all this urban change was happening, that the tech industry digitized our domains as well, which destabilized what were already kind of precarious professions, like even more. And so it's kind of hard to disentangle this feeling of you know a, a maybe not a golden age, but a golder age for journalism or fiction writing or poetry or filmmaking or whatever it was uh, because it's just harder to make a living in most of these creative professions now. Yeah, I would like to chime in there. I think that one of the things that we haven't talked about so much that really stands out to me experientially as a change is that when I, when I was coming up, I was very aware of being part of a community. Mm. Um, it wasn't just knowing your neighbors. It, these were creative communities. And, um, and I think part of, and, and you don't see that almost anywhere now, right? There are little bits of it. There's a literary community. There's a little bit here and there. Um, and certainly I feel that part of that is the self-interest, the focus on money necessary to survive in a place this expensive. Um, so some of it goes I think backwards, um, but also, also our communities are created on not online now. So with the with the digitization, there's much less of a of a need to interact with strangers. There's less of a feeling of oh, I, I have to know my neighbors because we find these communities in in online spaces, um, and that is an international situation, of course. But I think it's it's really. It's it's really striking to me um, from a, on a on a day to day basis how little involvement I feel in the community in like around. a local creative community exactly or like during during the AIDS crisis I, which I came up in as a child 
this was created out of necessity, of course, people were having to take care of themselves after basically being abandoned by the government um, in, in the 80s. But the, to see the way that the LGBTQ plus community came together to take care of, of its own and the allies came together to help is, is a very formative experience in, in my life. And I don't see anything like that here anymore. Yeah, it's, I, you know, I've heard this from a, a a lot of different writers that they they can't actually find where like the writer scene is. Um, da- Daniel Handler, do you think there is one to speak of? Um, I I mean, I just think the tenor of it has changed. I mean, a lo- when a lot of people ask me about the writing community, I think that's already kind of the wrong question. Like I'm still here, and there are other writers of um, my extremely elderly generation who. <laughs> I've been lucky enough to be successful enough that they can live here, but that's not the essence of a writing community, right? Any artistic community is made by young people who are interacting and changing and uh, bumping up against boundaries and are in a situation where they can uh, create something and live fairly comfortably by making these little things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see vanishing. Yeah. Um, you know, when I moved here, there were all sorts of kind of weird cabarets and reading series and collectives and all this stuff. And you see that being drummed out again and again and again. Yeah. And um, and so, I mean, people like to say, but there's still City Lights books. And look, here's like Dave Eggers walking down the street. But like that is not, in fact, of the essence of what a literary and creative community is. Yeah. And you see it in visual art, you see it in theater, you see it in kind of everything here and it's true that a lot of these communities are going online but i mean i the the way in which online communities don't at all resemble uh in-person communities i think makes perfectly clear and are often harmful in that way yeah we're talking with contributors to the new essay collection the end of the golden gate writers on loving and sometimes leaving san francisco got daniel handler alia bowles and kimberly reyes we'll be back with more after the break We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with contributors to the new essay collection, The End of the Golden Gate, writers on loving and sometimes leaving San Francisco. We've got Daniel Handler, who you may know as Lemony Snicket, Alia Vols, and Kimberly Reyes. Um, I want to just read some of the comments because they're kind of pouring in. Um, Daniel writes, I moved to San Francisco right out of college in New Mexico in 1975. A gay man who came to heaven. I live in a city of boom and bust. I've made it through. And San Francisco has made it through AIDS, cocaine in the 80s, and now COVID. I came to San Francisco because it was beautiful and diverse, not for money, which is why people come here now. Asha writes, It's worth talking about the influx of San Franciscans who turned their nose up at Oakland for years and are now doing to our city what has been done to theirs. So annoying. (laughs) Margareta writes, As a 30-year-plus resident of San Francisco in the Bay Area, I want to say don't lump all Asian Americans together. Low-income Asian American residents have also been displaced from San Francisco. There's a new group of higher-income Asian Americans working in tech who have moved in. We are not all alike. 
We also have a positive comment about San Francisco. Shockingly, uh, KS writes, I grew up in San Jose and Sunnyvale. San Francisco uh, was made out to be, by my suburban Republican mother, a scary place filled with dodgy people and crime. So, of course, after college, I immediately moved to San Francisco in 1990 and never left. While I've mourned the changes to the city since then, I still think of San Francisco as the place in which I cemented my identity as a writer and musician, as an adult and a father. Most of my defining experiences happened here, and I'm still in love with the place. I'm overjoyed to be raising my daughter here and love that she will always, for better or worse, say that she's from San Francisco. I, I have to say, I do also still love this place. I just, yeah. you know, well, I'm looking out at Sucho Tower right now, um, and it is still the the physical beauty as well as just the strange things you encounter on the street. I still love it. What I always say about the physical beauty of San Francisco is that what in so many cities would pass for remarkable beauty is like a totally average view in San Francisco. I've been to so many other places where people say like, look, they're like, look, we have a garden in the back of our apartment. And I go and there's like this depressing postage stamp that is like just where the mailbox is in a random neighborhood in San Francisco. And so I do think the physical beauty, which was achieved, you know, it w- which was kept beautiful through a- environmental activism at a time when environmental activism really had a, didn't have a concept, is to be grateful for. And I guess just when that caller was calling in and tying in um, San Francisco's problems with capitalism, it... In many ways, I think it's how I feel, how I feel about San Francisco is how I feel about capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's terrible. It's full of problems. But it's like it's better than any place else I've kind of hung out. <laughs> um, let's bring in Viggy from Oakland. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, really a big, big, longtime listener of the show and, and really appreciate this conversation. Um, I've kind of felt like so much of this feels attributable to globalism and sort of a monoculture that's developing. And I think part of it is because when I was growing up in the South Bay, I started coming up to visit as a young adult in the late 90s and early 2000s. And San Francisco had this reputation as like an outsider city with like a respite for anyone. So it was like, for me, it was like playing uh, rock and roll shows at the Pound or Chemo's or, or the Lobot Gallery. And of course, there's sort of these longstanding institutions like the Anarchist Book Fair, but there's like other things that have sort of like came and gone, like 26 Galaxies or Halloween in the Castro or, or Mabuhai Garden, like before my time. And so as far as like the romance feeling gone, I, I, I've thought about a lot of this as due to kind of the proliferation of the internet, like with the advent of Yelp and Google, there's fewer respites for outsiders. And it's definitely true in Portland or New Orleans or or other cities as well. And everywhere you hear that people are sort of longing for days gone by, but there's just sort of less mystique around any place these days. Like ritual coffee to me looks like any third wave coffee roaster now. And then there's like a blue bottle coffee in Tokyo that looks the exact same. And it's, it it just doesn't feel like we have, um, spaces that are really designed for those of us who feel in a, like we're lost in a world that seems um, more and more uh, like boring, I guess. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll take my comments off the air. Thanks, Figgy. Well, well, I sure yeah. agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I forgot all about chemos. Oh, my goodness. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of the the – I'm just going to make up a word, the airportization <laughs> of um, of our community spaces and, and bars and gathering places where everything, it, it looks like it could be absolutely anywhere. 
it's a completely anonymous same same kind of place and a lot of the newer spaces that are opening and replacing the variants uh, idiosyncratic ones have that quality I could be in any city right now. And then you look out the window and of course it's beautiful. Um, but that is, that is like part of the ache, right? It's yeah. just the, the you, you, you live somewhere that you think is unique and then it becomes very much the same. And I don't know if there's a way to undo that. I, I want to hear from our listeners on, on one particular topic now, which is what's an art or music or literary scene that's alive and well? In San Francisco, you know, I, we need some like younger listeners who are like 15 and know <laughs> more about these things uh, than I do. Uh, give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Um, uh, another... or if you know of a thriving artistic community in San Francisco, please invite me. You can email me. <laughs> yeah. I'm very lonely. <laughs> you know, the one I think of, um, just to throw one out there, it, it, it was revolving around uh, Wolfman Books in, in Oakland. You know, small press, like publishing little things. There were all kinds of like little community uh, events. Um, closed up shop during COVID. Um, let's bring in Vince from uh, San Francisco. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Really appreciate it. Long time listener, big time fan, um, you know, first time caller. And I really love all the insights that your panelists have been putting in. It's just, you know, I moved here in 2003, originally from Pasadena. My parents are first generation uh, immigrants from Hong Kong. And, you know, I moved here because, you know, the idea of just the inclusiveness, the progressive culture, um, you know, the the sense that anything is possible and that, you know, in this world where there's just so much going against us, that there's still a culture of optimism that we are the change. And so I think with a lot of the points of the economic displacements, the, the emigration of our black communities, that we're losing, we really are losing that. At the same time, I think there's just a, a big opportunity, especially coming out of the pandemic, that there is this longing for kind of civic engagement and people, you know, stepping up in, the, in real life instead of online to do something to better our community. And, um, you know, we started a campaign called Refuse Refuse to try to organize neighborhood cleanups. It's kind of a gateway civic engagement. And, you know, I still have a lot of faith. I think we just have to be a little bit more intentional about um, progressing our culture to be that beacon of light in a world that, you know, we're slipping back into some of these, you know, regressive type cultures. And so I think we have to be intentional about in, in encouraging artists, um, getting, getting teachers housing, you know, encouraging Black own, home ownership. Um, you know, I don't want this place to be a, a big gated community. So, um, yeah. you know, we just have to, as Susie Orman said, we got to stand in our truth. And uh, <laughs> I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Thanks, Vince. Got a couple of uh, comments which I'd like to uh, throw at our panel here. Um, Robin writes, I always get nervous uh, about complaining about San Francisco's changes, even clearly destructive changes, because I'm cognizant of the fact that every version of the city I ever loved basically destroyed the versions of the city that came before it all the way back to the beginning. So it's like, who am I to stop the clock or turn it back? I'm sure the happy San Franciscans of 1921 had the same thoughts, but the transformation and transformation again of their city produced the San Francisco's I love. Yeah. I, I think about that a lot because one of my frustrations is I, I 
I see the neighborhood that I live in, which used to be a lot more diverse, is very, very white. And then it's all full of like, you know, yoga moms with baby strollers. And it's like, ah, who are these families? I'm obviously not a kid person. But, uh, but I have to also be aware that in 1977, you know, my mom was wheeling me around in a baby stroller. And I grow up feeling like I have some kind of ownership over the place because of that, because I was born here. Well, the people who are in baby strollers today, they're born here. They have ownership um, or will grow up with that feeling of ownership. And of course, somebody's going to come and run, run roughshod over the version of the city that made them. I mean, this is just part of the cyclical nature of this place. Yeah. I mean, one of the most beautiful things I've ever read uh, about cities by Colson Whitehead. Um, and I, I wrote it down for this uh, for this conversation. I mean, it's about a New Yorker, but I think it also, you know, makes sense for San Francisco. And he, he writes, no matter how long you've been here, you're a New Yorker the first time you say, that used to be Munzee's or that used to be the TikTok lounge. That before the Internet Cafe plugged itself in, you got your shoes resold in the mom and pop operation that used to be there. You were a New Yorker when what was there before is more real and solid than what is here now. Um, yeah, I actually think of that quote all the time. Yeah. Kimberly, you're, you're our New Yorker. I'll come back to you in one second, Daniel. Kimberly, you're our New Yorker. Do you think that the New Yorkers have a different sense about urban change than people in San Francisco? Uh, um, I love being the New Yorker. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I think there's more of an aggression um, about like who's a New Yorker and uh, that in, in New York than anywhere else I've ever lived. Um, and I feel like it's because it's a tougher place to live. Um, and there's like, you know, you kind of earn it. And uh, especially if you grew up in New York, when you see people come in and they're like, yeah, I've lived here for 10 years. I'm now in New York. You're like, no, you're not. You know what I mean? Like you don't have the scars. Um, and, and San Francisco is not that at all because it's not a tough place to live in in that sense, you know? And so I, I think that there's more of an ownership to like, well, you know, I got, let's say the New York of the eighties, I got mugged or I lived through this or whatever. Um, and so I think there's way more of like, you take pride in it, but can I just loop around to the globalization thing yeah, for sure. one second? Um, I, I think that's a really important point, but I, I just want to not stray from the fact that a lot of this is systemic and looking at individual choices, um, I think takes us away from the problem, meaning I escaped San Francisco. And, and I just want to say quickly, I do still love San Francisco. My anger is because I do love it so much. If I didn't care, I just wouldn't care. Mm -hmm. um, but I left to go to Ireland and it, I left to find a better community and a better writing community. And Ireland is definitely, I mean, Dublin is the hub for, you know, the Silicon Valley of Europe right now. Um, and so you see the globalization coming in, you see, um, you know, pubs being displaced for blue bottle, <laughs> you know, and things like that. But um, the, what they're doing to combat that and why it's still, there's still a strong arts community there is the government funding of the arts. You know, um, individuals cannot change what's happening to San Francisco. Um, to be, you can live in Dublin as an artist. You can still do it because the government funds, there's bursaries and programs. I mean, of course it's a smaller um, country, but San Francisco is a small city, you know? Um, and what they do in Ireland with the arts is just astounding. So like, let's not like forget that like we, like without government help, without government intervention, it's just impossible. It's not really something individuals can change. Yeah. Daniel, sorry, I cut you off earlier. You were you were talking about the Colson Whitehead quote. Oh, I mean, it's true. I think you you feel more local when you're um, when you remember what was there before. But I think, but I but I think that is actually connected to to where Kimberly went with it. I mean, um, 
but I, to toot my own horn briefly, my wife and I sponsor a program through the San Francisco Public Library that has the puts writer, gives writers an office so they have somewhere to work. And um, I'm happy to do that. And it, it delights me that we've chosen some really great writers who spend a year uh, on site at the library working. Um, but it also, it makes me nostalgic because when I was starting out, I lived here right after college. I was a, a baby, baby writer and it was not impossible to have a room of one's own. You know, it was still a perfectly possible thing to do. And so I think that there's, there's kind of nostalgia, but the nostalgia can often be connected to a real problem that's happening. You know, I rented an apartment at 14th and Guerrero there and I had a half-time job. My wife, uh, then girlfriend had a scarcely paying job and we managed to have a very lovely kind of bohemian life. And um, to watch uh, that get pushed out of possibility is more than nostalgia. Yeah. You know, I, I had friends who were baristas and they lived nearby. And now when you are at Blue Bottle or Ritual, if you talk to the baristas, they are often living with their parents or they're taking a very, very long commute from the East Bay in order to come and make someone a macchiato. And that's a real problem. That isn't just nostalgia for, oh, I wish you were an individually owned business. Like that's a sizable problem. And I think we were talking about New York. I lived in New York as Manhattan was changing in a way that feels very permanent. You know, most of the artistic uh, young communities that are happening are happening not in Manhattan in New York City. Mm -hmm. And that's because so much of Manhattan has become a kind of globalized playground for wealthy people. And is it absolutely impossible to live there? No, of course it isn't impossible. Lots of people do. But in terms of something that has been pretty permanently changed, I think you see that going on. So I think it's, it, it's both easy to say, oh, everyone's always missed things that have gone by and things are always changing, but also to say that is tied to real changes that are happening. Yeah. I've always thought of San Francisco as being part of that like global archipelago of, of cities, whereas the other parts of the Bay become like more and more California as you go east. <laughs> you know, so you get to Oakland, it's like mostly California. You keep going, you, you get out like on the other side of the hills and you're like, wow, this is really no longer part of this, this other um, global place. Um, let's uh, go to Ray uh, in Palo Alto. Hi. Hi, Ray. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I moved out of here from to San Francisco back in 1984, lived in the city for about 30 years. And I've, you know, of course, I've seen the, the, the very slow and then very rapid migration of artists and art groups leaving the city because of the changing of the demographics. And, you know, there was a time when you used to be able to go through the city for the open studios, and there was an absolute explosion of artists showing their wares at their houses or warehouses or apartments or whatever. And that slowly declined, and that makes me really, really sad. But I think also what, what I do find heartening is that there are groups in the city that have very small collectives of artists doing some really fantastic stuff. Among them, I think, first and foremost, are people associated with the Burning Man Project and how the Burning Man Project has actively promoted citywide public displays of art in San Francisco, outside of San Francisco, and, of course, in the Black Rock Desert. Mm -hmm. And I, I just hope that that kind, of, that, that kind of fostering of the arts continues, and maybe we'll see a, 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 an ingress or people moving back to the city working as artists. That's, that's my big hope. And, and finally, I guess I wanted to give a shout out to a book that for me perfectly defined San Francisco. And it's by a guy named 
Bikram Seth, who wrote a book called The Golden Gate. Yeah. And it was done entirely in, in iambic pentameter. In and sonic. I just want to know what anybody else has read it. Wow. Dan, you uh, want to describe that book as our final uh, <laughs> final yeah, comment? Yeah, I mean, that book was kind of required reading for my crowd just out of college. Uh, it's entirely in sonnets. It's a really elegant book. And I think it manages to... Um, to very lightly and elegantly uh, encompass some of the issues that we're talking about. And also I think of the kind of liberating love that happens in San Francisco that people who uh, particularly in the recent past felt free not to love who they were anywhere else. So yeah, that's a great book. I co-sign a love of Vikram Seth. <laughs> um, last two uh, listener comments. Um, I was born in SF in the Chinese hospital and raised my two daughters there. I moved away five years ago when my oldest left for college. I find any excuse to go back to SF every week because I miss it desperately and feel so sorry I moved. It is very white where I live, and I just miss walking and living among Asians every day. Another person says, while I sympathize and agree 100% with most of these complaints and criticisms, I find it offensive to those of us who have hung on, been lucky enough to find a way to make it work and still pour love into this place. I moved here from a conservative southern town, and I will always believe that San Francisco on a bad day is better than my hometown on a good day. Amen to that. Um, we, thanks so much to our guests. We've been talking with contributors to the new essay collection, The End of the Golden Gate, Writers on Loving and Sometimes Leaving San Francisco. It's been Daniel Handler, Alia Volds, and Kimberly Reyes. We'll be back with more Forum with Mina Kim after the break. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.